Hey, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians 5. If you don't have a Bible, since everybody's still kind of up and dancing around, you can grab one in the back there. Passages, Galatians 5, we're going to be doing 15 through 26. Galatians 5, week 11, is that right, Scott? Did you, you hummed when I said that over there, was that right? Week 11, we have two more weeks in our Galatians series, and then we are going to be going uh, in for our Advent series, which is going to take us uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. We're doing a four-week series called One Story, One Savior. We're going to go through the entire Bible, because we're just you know, ambitious like that. Um, we're going to see the story of the gospel and how God worked his redemptive plan uh, from day one to uh, whatever the final day is going to be. So that's what we're doing here. Galatians 5. Well, between the ages of 8 and 14, I actually lived in a, in a rural community, and one of our neighbors uh, had planted all these peach trees um, on their property on the side of a hill that overlooked this valley that we could kind of see uh, in our neighborhood. At one point, uh, they invited me to walk over whenever I wanted uh, to eat as many peaches as I could eat. Um, so on summer days, I would walk over, I would sit on the side of the hill, and I would just eat peach after peach. And uh, at some point, I probably should have brought some over for pie or, or something. I probably got like a horrible stomach ache. Um, but the point was that I, I had a particular access to this fruit whenever I wanted it. And I looked forward to those days when I would walk over and I could lay on the side of the hill and I could just stuff myself with peaches as often as I could. I wanted to taste the peaches. Today, the Apostle Paul is talking about a kind of spiritual fruit that all believers have access to when they walk by the Spirit. And so Paul, if you've noticed over the last few weeks, Paul has been pleading with the Galatians and he's been pleading with them to not turn back to self-justifying practices. And the main one he's been dealing with here is circumcision. Um, and he's saying, don't turn back. Don't go back to something like circumcision to become right with God. He's saying, look, uh, the gospel frees you. It has freed you for a life of freedom because being declared righteous before God doesn't come through doing all these ritualistic Jewish laws, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He basically says this, everything else is slavery. And the fruit that comes from slavery, he's going to tell us today, are works of the flesh. And then he says, if those become a lifelong pattern, they give evidence that maybe the grace of God has never transformed you. That's why he's so serious. That's why his tone has been so serious and kind of dark as he's been talking to the Galatians. But he says for the transformed person who walks by the Spirit, there's this beautiful fruit that we have access to as it becomes more deeply cultivated inside of us. So let's pick up Galatians 5 and verse 16. Paul says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. But these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So this is the word of the Lord for us today. So what Paul is saying is simply this. As we walk by the Spirit, two things happen. Flesh gets crucified, and yet on the other hand, fruit gets cultivated. So what does Paul mean when he says these lines in here, when he says walk by the Spirit, when he says be led by the Spirit, when he says live by the Spirit, when he says keep in step with the Spirit? Well, first off, let's establish what exactly or who exactly the Holy Spirit is. We know from Scripture that he's a person, that he's the third person of the Trinity, which we know being orthodox in our beliefs or traveling down this road of orthodox Christianity, we know this as being the triune Godhead, one God in three persons. And what we know is that these three persons existed in love for eternity before they even created the world and then saving the world they created after its creatures committed treason against them. That would be you, that would be me. So this is how we can kind of think of how the Trinity all works together in terms of the plan of salvation that God put into place when we rebelled all the way back in the garden. The Father planned our salvation, the Son purchased our salvation, and then the Spirit preserves us in our salvation. So the Spirit preserves us by applying that salvation that Jesus the Son purchased and then sanctifies us to be more like Jesus until we see him face to face in glory. That's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us as he lives and breathes and teaches us these things. This is what we call our blessed hope. So if the Holy Spirit is doing this work in us, what does Paul mean when he tells the Galatians to then walk by the Spirit? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5.17, another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he says, he is a new creation. He says, the old, it's passed away. He said, behold, check it out, look, the new has come. So if you are somebody who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, you have been literally transformed into a new creation. You have peace with God the Father through God the Son and are now indwelled by God the Holy Spirit who is now doing things in you, right? He's now teaching you. He's guiding you. He's comforting you. He's enabling you to live out your newly created, newly reborn newness. And this newness formed in you. You know what this means for us? This means that there is a former us. So because there is newness that has been formed in us, it means that there is a former you, a former you that walked in a different reality than you now walk in. Paul describes the former you. If we go back to Galatians 2 verse 20, this is what he says. He says, look, I have been crucified with Christ. He said, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I'm still living a life in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So 
So the result of hearing God's word by faith and walking by the Spirit is this. He says it right there in verse 16. He says, the desires of the flesh, that former you, and they will not be gratified. They will not be given any way, any leeway, any place in your life. Paul pointed out last week that for freedom, he said, Christ has set you and I free. And part of that freedom is what? Well, it's that we're free to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're also free to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are freed toward that most freeing of freedoms, right? But when we live under the law, what happens is that our relationship with Christ suffers. And when that happens, our neighbors suffer as a result. So Paul said, remember last week, he said, stand firm. Don't submit again to this yoke of slavery. Well, then the question is, what power do we have to stand firm with? We just get to stand firm? It's just because we made a decision for Jesus that all of a sudden now, with all of our might, if we just clench our fists and grit our teeth, we're just able to stand firmer? We're not. We can only do it by a particular power that exists in us because of the freedom we have, which is the Holy Spirit. That's the power. And that is the power that Paul is talking about that we need to walk in so that we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice Paul says, walk by the Spirit. What does that imply? Well, I'm not a genius, but it implies that it's not running. He didn't say run by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what this means to us is that it's a slow journey. It's not a fast sprint. Man, I don't think that we get this very well. I mean, I know I don't, right? Uh, the Christian life is meant to be approached not like a sprint, but like a marathon, which many of you maniacs in our church like to train and partake in, right? Now, here's my question. Do you prepare for a marathon in a day? Well, if you're me, yes, you do. It takes one day of running for me to decide that I'm never going to run a marathon or run ever, right? No, I mean, what you do is you prepare, you train, you run consistently day after day. You build your cardio. You're building your leg muscles while preparing mentally for the distance that you know is going to be ahead of you in the race. So if you discipline yourself, if you eat well, if you get good rest, you will not gratify the desire to do anything that will undo your progress. Your body has been and is being transformed. You're a runner now, right? And runners do whatever it takes to run well. Runners don't spend their time on the couch under a layer of Cheeto dust and Oreo crumbs, like I do, right? Because they're runners. So to walk by the Spirit means that in your newfound gospel freedom, you run well by living a new life, obeying the commands of Jesus. How do you do that? You do it from a deep love and affection for him and your neighbors, and then in that, there is this eager waiting for the hope of righteousness, Paul said, reminding, reminding us last week, that will be revealed to us when we see him in glory. So as you are led, Paul says, by the Spirit, the passions and des desires of your flesh, they're crucified, which is our next point. So when we walk by the Spirit, our flesh gets 
crucified. And what Paul describes next is interesting because what he points out is that there is an oppositional relationship, right? And you got to remember what's going on in your heart after you are saved by God's grace is that there is an oppositional relationship that's now been created between the desires of the flesh and the spirit. There is competition now inside of you. Look what it says in verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Why is that interesting? Well, because transformation by God's grace is not rehabilitation, all right? You're not working to get back to where you once were. It's a transformation of desire. When your mind is renewed to receive the good things of God for the good of your heart, it's motivational before it's behavioral. And it can't work the other way around. That's why Paul says the desires of the flesh and the spirit. He didn't say the works of the flesh and the spirit. He said the desires of the flesh and the spirit. What Paul is getting at here is the root of our conflict between our flesh and spirit and that it's motivational. See, from the outside, uh, the Galatians and the Judaizers who were influencing the Galatians to go to works of the law, they appeared to be doing God's will, right? If you walked in, they appeared to be doing God's will. But their motivation, their motive was self-justification. It was self-salvation. So that's why Paul's focus here is on desire. Because to tell, listen, To tell the Galatians to simply change their behavior and stop all this circumcision stuff would mean that even if they did reject circumcision, their rejection of it could be from the same wrong motivation, with the exception that it would hurt a lot less. Just saying, right? So the gospel freedom that comes from salvation in Christ, what is it? What's a motivational change of your heart? It's that you now desire to serve God out of a love and gratefulness for him. Not to simply do the right thing in an attempt to alleviate your good or accentuate your good. It's being who you are for the sake of who God is. That's what's going on. Now, when my little brother and I would fight back in the day, my parents would always make us Maybe you have this experience. They would make us face each other, say sorry, and hug it out. It was ridiculous. It was torture. It was ridiculous because our hearts were like 100% not in it, like at all, right? Hugging and apologizing satisfied my parents every time, but it shouldn't have. I shouldn't have satisfied them at all because it didn't satisfy God at all, right? There was no attempt Oh, you parents are going, oh, shoot, that's what I've been doing my whole life. But there was no attempt to go beneath the surface of our anger. It was just behave, kids. There was no attempt to go beneath the surface of that anger to discuss the root of our violent outbursts and see how transformation in the gospel gives us access to love and self-control. Why? Because Christ suffered violence on the cross to remove our violent desires. That was two sentences right there. Oh, that's a lot to tell my kids when they're, you know, when they're battling together. I know, but what else are you going to tell them? Buck it up? Because you're going to have the same problem in about five minutes. 
But see, that's the kind of conditioning that we've been given that we pass on and then it just gets cycled and cycled. The problem is that we want our kids, we want our, our friends, we want our coworkers, we want them to just stop it, don't we? But until we understand and address the oppositional conflict at the heart level, we really, we really just want them to act better, don't we? We just want them to act better. But acting, the problem with acting is that it's untruth. It's not truth. And acting eventually gives way to our actual selves, doesn't it? So Melissa and I took a trip to Singapore about a decade ago. And we, uh, man, we were eating all this Singaporean food and it was great. But at some point I was like, man, I just need, I just need a burger and fries because I can only go a couple of days and I, you know, I need to have that, right? Like the American that I am. So we go to this place and it was like the, it was like the Singapore version of like the fifties diner, you know, with the checkered floors and, you know, the red vinyl seats and, you know, the whole thing. And I was like, oh man, here we are. We've, we found it, you know? And so, man, we get our burgers and our fries and, you know, we're like sitting there and we're literally grabbing fries with our hands, like four at a time, to dunking it in ketchup. And we looked around at some point, listen to this, and realized everyone else were eating fries with their forks, right? And you know what's crazy? Like, we didn't care. We just like kept shoving them in with our hands. You know what I mean? We were like, oh, that's how they eat, but we don't eat that way. Oh, you know, we're shoving them. It was ridiculous. So here's my point. We had the tools. We had the forks, but our passions and our desire was to get the food in like the American animals that we were, right? We had no conflict, really, because, well, we weren't Singaporeans, right? So there was nothing in us that had any motivation or desire to actually want to do what would have been a little more right and proper given the culture that we were in. So what's interesting about that is that when Christ saves you, think about that line, when Christ saved you, you needed saving. When Christ saves you, there's something then that immediately happens to your motivations and your desires that you now want to live according to everything that he tells us to live like in Scripture because we know it's best, because we know that it pleases him. And we know that anything that gives God glory that he charges us and commands us to do is ultimately the safest path to satisfaction. But there's conflict in us. There's oppositional conflict in every Christian between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Paul himself, man, the dude just struggled with this. Like he's no different than we are. He struggled with it in Romans 7. He said, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So he says these desires keep us from doing the things that we want to do, both good and bad. And Paul says in verse 18 that if you are led by the Spirit, though, he says, and this is what's interesting how he follows us up. He says you are not under the law. Why did he say that? Why did he say not under the law? Instead of saying if you're led by the Spirit, you'll just act a lot better. You'll just behave the way you should, and I wish you would, because like my hand's getting tired, I'm tired of writing this letter. Galatians. You know, he didn't say that. He said that because those who choose to live under the law, which is what the Galatians were, were falling back into, to trust in their own works for salvation, you know what happens? What happens is that we become an avalanche into the works of the flesh. 
That's the root. Well, what are the works of the flesh? Well, we just read it in verse 19. I'm going to read it again. It says, they're evident, the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So, like, the list isn't exhaustive. There was, like, more stuff Paul got tired of writing, right? Now, I'm not going to break down all of these, but there's a couple of interesting things to point out here. First, he starts by saying that these works are evident. They're evident. Meaning for those of us who have been saved by the work of Jesus on the cross and are now walking by the Spirit in good works, these sins become glaring. They become glaringly obvious both in us and in one another. So being led by the Spirit means the passions and desires of our flesh become more easily identified in us because why? Because we increasingly love what God loves and increasingly hate what God hates. Does that ever happen to you uh, today, right? Something comes out of your mouth that crossed the line and you feel conviction, right? Or what about when you have those moments where you engage in gossip or slander and your conscience just feels wrecked? Or what about when you throw a temper tantrum and you're just ashamed at how ugly and ungodly the whole episode was? This is opposition between your flesh and your spirit. It's evident, right? Secondly, notice that Paul's list of flesh works is over the top, okay? It's over the top compared to what he brought up to the Galatians in verse 15 and what he brings up to the Galatians in verse 26, it's completely over the top, isn't it? I mean, Galatians are probably going, hold on, Paul. Who said anything about sexual immorality and sorcery? Good grief, man, right? What does this tell us? It tells us that for those who choose to live under the law, like the Galatians were falling back into, rather than by grace, the potential for sin has no limitations. Like, dude, it is that vast, right? And by the way, he doesn't like, there's, there's no priority in that list, is there? He just puts it all together. And thirdly, it's curious that he does do just that. He includes in his works of the flesh all of those things that we kind of look at and we make different judgments on. It's like Paul lays out a plate of food and mashes all the meat, all the potatoes, all the vegetables together and calls it one delicious dish of flesh. That's what he's saying here when he puts all of these things together. So the question for you today and for me today is how do we relate to this list? Because when I look down at this list, if I'm being honest, is I start to pick the ones that sort of maybe apply to me, right? You know? Is that you? Oh, so we're not honest now. We're not, do, we don't, we're not honest anymore. That's what I do, right? I, I'm like, I'm looking down, I go, sorcery? I'm like, man, I read some Harry Potter every once in a while, but like, I don't see myself like falling into sorcery, Right? Some of you look at rivalries and are like, well, of course I'm rooting against Michigan on Thanksgiving weekend. Like, is that, is that what he's talking about right there? But if you take a closer look, you'll see sins like impurity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and envy and realize, dude, that's describing my Thanksgiving dinner in two weeks. And he puts it with all those other things. He doesn't prioritize any of these flesh works. And his point to the Galatians and to us is that those who practice these works show something about the evidence of grace in their life. They show that there has not been any inner transformation by 
the Spirit, those who practice these things. Now, notice I said practice. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that we don't fall into some of these sins. But he's talking about a habitual lifestyle of these sins controlling the passions and desires of your life to where when somebody looks at you, you are characterized by these things. Paul issues a warning in verse 21. And it's really spooky. He says, I warn you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This should sober us. I had a conversation recently with somebody who's facing, facing a, you know, a morally compromising situation. And um, they were asking me some questions about it. And they made this comment to me. They said, look, I don't really mind. Um, people do these things all the time, but I know the Lord doesn't approve. And so I had to breathe out and I had to pause because my self-righteousness started to go off, right? It started to ping. It started to, to turn like those tornado sirens every Wednesday in Ashland, right? That's what was going on in my heart. I had to pause. I had to wait. Um, walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit means that we are sensitive and we are sober-minded toward those things that God has declared unrighteous and unholy. If God minds something, then we mind it. If God's not cool with something, therefore, we are not cool with that thing. How serious is this? Well, Paul mentions in Romans 1, 18 through 19, what does he say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress what? The truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. Then he goes on to say in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. It's almost like he extends the list here. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. There you go, kids. If you thought you were off this list, back on it right here. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I mean, dude, that is so big. That is so heavy. That is so much truth for us to process. But you know what this does for us? This doesn't cause us to boast, does it? This never causes Christians to boast because this is how we once walked. This doesn't cause us to hate and dismiss and disassociate. Let me say that word again. Disassociate with those who are trapped under the law and practice this kind of behavior because this is how we once walked. This calls us to do something else. It calls us to be sober. It calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling like Paul instructs the Philippian church. And then in Philippians 2 when he said, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this leads us back to verse 24, which is the only hope for any of us, which Paul says, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the one hope is that for those of us who belong to Christ now, who are known by him, like he said in the beginning of the book, we have access to a particular kind of fruit that while we are practicing and disciplining ourselves towards that, simultaneously, the desires and passions of the flesh are being crucified. 
So to walk by the Spirit means that flesh is crucified and finally fruit is cultivated. And he says that in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now it's notable that Paul categorizes the desires of the flesh as work of the flesh, but the desires of the Spirit he categorizes as fruit of the Spirit. Why does, he, why does he do that? What's the difference between those things? Well, because those who walk by the Spirit are those who have benefited from the work of the Spirit in their hearts when they believed Jesus by faith. So the result of that is fruit. Does this mean we're just passive? So I believed, and now I have this fruit in my life. Does this mean we're passive? Well, we, we were passive in our salvation. Heck yes, okay? Which is why there is any fruit at all But with the Spirit's help, we now discipline ourselves to pursue those things which result in fruit. So what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes at the end here, and I want to unpack uh, the fruit of the Spirit as is laid out by Paul. And this is the list I'm going to read from Tim Keller, by the way, so you can all be amazed that I simply just know how to read, all right? I want to keep that pretty clear. But let's go through these different fruits. Let's start with love. This is what Tim Keller says about love. He says, it means to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what the person brings you. The opposite of love is fear, which is self-protection and abusing people. He says the counterfeit of love is selfish affection, where you are attracted to someone and treat them well because of how they make you feel about yourself. So love is to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value. Joy, he says, is a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Its opposite is hopelessness or despair. And its counterfeit is an elation that is based on experiencing blessings, not the blesser, causing mood swings based on circumstances. So joy is a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Peace is a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than in your own. It replaces anxiety and worry. The fake version of peace, he says, is indifference. It's apathy. It's not caring about something. So peace is a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God. Patience is an ability to face trouble without blowing up or or hitting out. Its opposite is resentment toward God and others. And its counterfeits are cynicism and lack of care. In other words, this is just too small for me to even care about. You would have never thought that about patience. But patience is an ability to face trouble without blowing up. Kindness is an ability to serve others practically in a way that makes me vulnerable, which comes from having a deep inner security. Its opposite is envy, which leaves me unable to rejoice in another's joy. And its fake alternative is manipulative good deeds, doing good for others so I can congratulate myself and feel I am good enough for others and for God. So kindness is an ability to serve others practically in a way that makes me vulnerable because I have a deep inner security. Goodness is, another word for goodness is integrity. That's what this means. It means being the same person in every situation rather than being a phony or being a hypocrite. It's not the same as always truthful but not always loving. It's, it's like getting things off your chest, he says, just to make yourself feel or look better. So goodness is an integrity about being the same person in every situation. Faithfulness, another word for faithfulness would be loyalty or courage. 
It's to be utterly reliable and true to your word. The opposite of faithfulness is to be an opportunist, a friend only in good times. And it's counterfeit is to be loving but not truthful so that you are never willing to confront or challenge somebody. That's not being very faithful. Faithfulness is loyal to your courage to be reliable and true to your word. Gentleness, gentleness, another word is humility or self-forgetfulness. The opposite of that is to be superior or self-absorbed. And remember, humility is never the same as inferiority, right? And then finally, self-control, the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than to always be impulsive or uncontrolled. And the slightly surprising counterfeit, Tim Keller says, is a willpower which is based on pride or the need to feel in control. So self-control is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than to always be impulsive. So that's just some mild, uh, quick fleshing out of what these fruits of the Spirit um, are, um, how they're available to us, because as soon as Christ saved us, the Holy Spirit was now in our life, making these things accessible to us for us to grow in. So here's a couple of fruit observations at the end. I want to make some observations on these things um, to help us understand how these work out. Okay, Number one, fruit needs to come before flesh. We need to get the order right. What happens if we spend our time merely crucifying the flesh? In other words, if you look at Galatians 5, 16 through 26, or whatever the passage is, and you say, okay, man, I just got to buckle down. The whole goal now is I'm going to walk out of here, I'm going to have my last donut, and then I'm going to start like crucifying the works of the flesh. What happens when we do that? What happens when we walk out of here and our minds and our emphasis is on the flesh? Well, you're going to be exhausted very quickly. You're going to fall into despair very quickly. You're going to fall into legalism quickly because you know what? You're probably going to have a real good week. And you're going to look at everybody else like, oh man, they're just not going after the works of the flesh like I am, right? I actually listened to what Big R was saying on Sunday. So it's going to make you a legalist and then it's going to ultimately end up in you being defeated because you cannot maintain that. Instead, Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit by living by the Spirit. What Paul is saying is the emphasis needs to be on God. The emphasis needs to be on those things that you pursue that have been birthed inside of you by virtue of your salvation. Two, he says fruit, not fruits, plural. You notice that? Because we belong to Christ, all of Christ belongs to us. Now remember, these are not spiritual gifts, right? They're spiritual fruits. They're spiritual attributes, which means it's not like, well, you know, I'm just a guy that has a little more gentleness than I do self-control. So I can like let the self-control kind of, you know, fall to the wayside a little bit because really my spiritual fruit is love, um, not so much peace, right? That's not how it works. We have access to all of these equally. Now, do we experience all of these equally? No, we don't. We experience different percentages of these because we still are battling against the flesh, but all of these are available. One commentator said this about it. He said, the fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist to work through, but the unified blossoming of a heart liberated by the gospel of grace. Dude, that's sweet the way he described that. John MacArthur described the fruit of the Spirit. He said, think of it like a bouquet of flowers when it's given to you. You get all the flowers in the bouquet. 
So remember, it's fruit before flesh. It's fruit, not fruits. And then number three, we got to remember that fruit grows slowly. The illustration is a fruit. It grows slowly, but it grows. Fruit grows. This is the guarantee in the life of the Christian, even when you don't always see it happening. Romans 7, 4, Paul says, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God, right? And when's the last time you watched a child grow? You don't see a child grow, but you mark their growth as time goes by. Lily, uh, Livy Cook was born two months before we planted substance. We didn't see her grow, And truthfully, we didn't see her hair grow for like years, right? I'm just going to throw that one out there because the cooks aren't here and I'm praying they don't listen to the the podcast. But the birth of her brother, Lawson James, last week shows us how much she's grown, doesn't it? Fruit is not like fast food. Fruit is tended and cultivated. Remember, there are weeds that need to be pulled while fruit is being cultivated. So you will sometimes, many times, war against the works of the flesh that keep reappearing in your life. And you know what? Listen, I need you all to listen. Or else I did all this for nothing. The war is important. Oh, Ronnie, I don't want to be engaged in a war. You're engaged in this war, brother. War is important. It's evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is evident in you. How is that? Because even, listen, this is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, I think. Even the desire the desire to want to crucify the flesh and the desire to want to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit means that the love of Jesus is inside you. Even that desire, that desire is part of the fruit that the Spirit is cultivating in you. You would only have passions and desires for the flesh otherwise. So be encouraged. Your passions were redeemed by Christ's passion on the cross, which is why you even have sometimes a 1% passion for Christ. Finally, and this is where we're going to end. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit, the very fruit of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.11, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ is to the glory and praise of God. Jesus loved so that we can love without fear. For joy, Jesus endured the cross so we don't have to despair. Jesus is the Prince of Peace so we can have confidence and rest in him. Jesus was patient toward us so that we don't have to become cynical. The kindness of Jesus led to our repentance so that with the same kindness we can serve others out of security. Jesus was good so that we can have integrity and purity of heart. Jesus was faithful so that we can be reliable and true to others in God. Jesus was gentle so that we can be self-forgetful and humble toward others. And Jesus had perfect self-control, denying even his own rights so that we might not be controlled by passions and desires that lead to death. You who belong to Christ, this is yours. So we will work hard to crucify the passions and the desires of the flesh. But how we will do it, by falling back into the mercy and grace of God. 
How we will do it is by falling back into praying and pleading before the Lord that all that he has given us in Jesus, all that he has commanded us, we would obey with hearts of thankfulness, gratefulness, and joy, knowing that what is being produced by that obedience is the path towards our greatest satisfaction until we see him face to face. This is the good news. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we have this evidence of fruit when we look at your life and that it now it exists in us. It's accessible. It's available to us. All these attributes that we see when we live a life of obedience to you. Lord, we know that there is a battle. We know that there is oppositional conflict between our flesh and our spirit, but ultimately, that flesh has been conquered. So Lord, I pray that we would remember that even this morning when we're thinking about some of those sins that still tend to hit us. We think of those things that we are still battling. We know that that's really not who we are anymore because we've been redeemed, we've been transformed. We now have freedom. And Lord, that freedom means that even though we find ourselves falling into works of the flesh, we know that we can come to you. We know that you will forgive us when we are repentant. We know that you still love us. So God, equip us in greater love. Lord, equip us to find our greatest satisfaction in you so that we, we work, we battle to crucify the flesh because our real pursuit is towards the things that give us wholeness. Lord, thank you for being so good to us that all these things are accessible and available because of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.